Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. And I am thrilled to welcome you to today's conversation, Worker Financial Wellness, How Corporations Can Build Quality Jobs. Conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the changing landscape of economic opportunity in the United States implications for individuals, families, and communities across the country, and ideas for change. I want to thank Prudential Financial, the Walmart Foundation, the Cerdna Foundation, and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of our Opportunity America discussion series. I'm excited for today's discussion because of really the incredible importance of this topic. For decades, we've seen rising inequality of earnings and wealth, dividing our country by race, by class, by ethnicity, geography, and gender. And those divisions undermine the narrative about equality of opportunity in our country. Even before the pandemic, and even for individuals with long-term, quote-unquote, steady jobs, financial stability has been out of reach for far too many working people because stagnant earnings did not keep pace with a rising cost of living, irregular, uh, and unpredictable earnings would fail to cover regular and very predictable monthly bills. And insufficient earnings leads to low household wealth and little ability to build the financial foundation that provides the foundation and the, the necessary means to pursue economic mobility. These conditions worsened for many during the COVID-19 recession and our related crises, but it's important to remember that these systemic problems and inequities in our labor market predate the pandemic, and we need to learn from this past as we find our way forward. So today we are discussing how companies can do more to improve the financial health of their workers, and hopefully we will move toward a world where work provides what many people expect it to provide, a living. We are pleased to join the Work of Financial Wellness Initiative to bring you today's conversation. The initiative was uh, launched in October 2020 by Just Capital and PayPal in collaboration with the Financial Health Network and the Good Jobs Institute. The goal of the initiative is to raise workers' financial security so that it's a corporate and investor priority. Companies in the initiative commit to assessing the financial vulnerability of their workforce, and they join a community of practice to identify opportunities to improve their long-term resilience. The companies on the panel today are drawn from the Worker Financial Wellness Initiative, and we're really excited to have them here to hear more about what they've been learning and what they're doing and how they're uh, really making a difference in the lives of workers in their companies. But just very quickly before we begin, review of this technology. Um, all attendees are muted, but we very much welcome your questions. Please use the Slido box on the bottom of your screen for questions or comments. Questions can be submitted and you can also upvote questions on the Q&A tab. We also really like you to share your perspectives, experience, if you're working on these issues, if you have resources to share, um, please do share those in the ideas tab that you can also find in the Slido box. Um, and again, in the Slido box, we always really value everybody's feedback. So please, before you leave today, um, we do have a poll there uh, so that you can give us a little bit of feedback about today's event. Please um, don't forget to do that before you go. We are really thrilled with participation in today's event. Uh, thank you to the many of you who submitted questions in advance. 
Um, we will have a Q&A period and we will try to get to as many questions, both submitted in advance and submitted now as possible. So um, please keep them coming during the, the conversation. We also encourage you to tweet about this conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. And if you have any technical issues during the webinar and you can't chat them in, you can also email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Uh, this webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website following today's event. Um, also, closed captions are available for this discussion, so you can just click the CC button at the bottom of your video screen to activate them if you want to use that option. And now I will briefly introduce our panelists. There's bioinformation on the website, so I'll just quickly give you um, names and faces, um, but they're very impressive, so please do take a look at their bios. Um, we're delighted to welcome today um, Marisa Andrada, Chief Diversity, Inclusion, and People Officer for Chipotle. Welcome, Marisa. Uh, Sarah Kay, Vice President of Inclusive Solutions at Prudential Financial. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. And Franz Pasha, PayPal Senior Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer. Thank you for joining us, Franz. And I'm really thrilled that we have Lauren Weber with us today as our moderator. Uh, Lauren is a Wall Street Journal reporter. She writes about management, workplace issues. She has a special interest in workforce development and skills, compensation, and the intersection between economic trends and the on, on the ground practices of employers. So Lauren's really the perfect moderator for today's conversation. And I will turn it over to you. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Maureen. And thank you everyone for being here and especially to our panelists. Um, like Maureen said, there will be time for some Q&A after the conversation. So please make sure to uh, put in your questions and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, so we're talking about financial wellness. And when I was thinking about that topic, I uh, started to, you know, I was thinking about how, what a strange time we're at right now in our economy and our labor market. There are so many contradictions and it's, very, very hard to see what direction things are going in. If we're going in a positive direction, whether it's about uh, you know, financial security, um, wages, employment numbers, uh, or you know, whether or not some of the positive things are transitory and we're going to possibly go backward on some of them. Um, you know, some of the things we see is yesterday, the census department uh, put out some numbers showing that poverty in the United States went down in 2020. And uh, which is great news, but a lot of the reason behind that is because we had so many, uh, so much government spending on safety net programs, um, stimulus checks and others. And so there's a very open question right now on how much of that will continue. And obviously that's being battled out in Congress, probably as we speak. Um, also, we see record job openings. There are almost 11 million job openings in the United States right now, and about 8.4 million unemployed people. Um, you'd think it would be really easy for people to find jobs, find better jobs, jobs that pay well. Um, but what I find in my conversations with workers is it's really not that easy in many cases, either because of geography or skills or you know, people are simply not as mobile as the numbers suggest that they should be. Um, we also see wages rising after a long stretch where they weren't going up appreciably. But, you know, again, that's not that's not redounding to every person out there. So there, you know, there are all these different contradictions and uh, I'm hoping that the topic of our conversation today will help uh, sort of put some of those into context and help 
our audience members think about where they and their employers fit into trying to uh, find solutions to some of these issues. I just want to give one example from my recent reporting. I'm working on a story about overtime. I'm sure it's a topic that many employers, I know it's a topic many employers are thinking about. Lots of people are being asked to work extra hours to make up for the fact that employers can't hire enough people. I was interviewing a young forklift operator who's 24, has a young daughter. He's working 72 hours a week. Um, overtime adds a lot of money to his paycheck. He makes about $18 an hour regular time, so about $27 for the OT. And I said, you know, but he said, I don't get to see my daughter very much. And I said, well, you know, what would be the ideal situation here? Thinking he would say, I, I, you know, 50 or 60 hours a week. And instead, he immediately said, a raise. You know, and, and I heard that from a few other people I talked to where even working a lot of extra hours and getting that bump in their pay from time and a half, they're still feeling like it's hard to keep up. The cost of living is going up. They have rising expenses. So, you know, even, you know, when you're working hard and you've got a full-time job and you have a chance to make some extra money, it's still not enough for a lot of people. So with that as a little bit of framing and backdrop for our conversation, let's turn to the uh, Worker Financial Wellness Initiative. And Franz PayPal was the original corporate partner in this. And um, I'd love to hear from you, you know, why did PayPal get involved in this? How did it get on the company's radar? And, um, you know, where did you, why did you see this as uh, the way to move forward on the issue? Yeah, <clears throat> well, thanks so much. And uh, uh, I really appreciate having this opportunity to participate in this panel. Um, so really for PayPal, this um, is an outgrowth of how we understood we needed to live our mission. And if you go back to PayPal's sort of mission as to how we think about the purpose um, of our company, we say in our mission that we are going to democratize financial services and e-commerce, that we're going to serve those who've been underserved by the financial system and make it uh, affordable and safe for everyone to be able to move and manage their money. And we speak about improving the financial health of, of our customers and our communities. Um, as we lived this mission, we realized we had to also uh, focus on our employees and to be sure that we were living this mission of focusing on financial health and financial wellness with our employees. And we came to it in a rather you know, dramatic way for us as a company um, in the period of 2018 to 2019, so even before the pandemic. We, um, we of course, were looking at the trends um, that our customers are facing and seeing some of the statistics about the financial health um, of, of our customers across the economic spectrum we started to see trends in the way our employees were drawing on our emergency um, employee relief funds. We, like many companies, we have an employee relief fund and it was for, it's for when there are extreme circumstances and we wanna be able to be sure we can help our employees. But we started to see requests for emergency relief for things that might in some eras be seen as day-to-day um, -day expenses. It might be a car repair, it might be that, that one thing that tips the equilibrium. And so we started to survey our employees because we understood that there was more work we needed to do internally. And when we surveyed our employees, we found that for close to a third of our employees and particularly those who are hourly uh, workers or who are entry level workers, that many, many, many were living paycheck to paycheck. And this was, um, it shouldn't have been a surprise, but we pay market 
wages and we pay, we are competitive in, in what we offer in our pay packages um, across and around the world. So the market wasn't working and we understood we had to sort of dig in. So we developed a measurement um, that we call net disposable income. And it was a measurement that, that enabled us to see sort of what do our uh, employees have to invest in their financial health, to support their financial health after they've paid all the basic expenses. So after you pay for taxes and you pay for your housing and you pay for food and the things that are sort of the necessities, what's left to build resilience and to build financial uh, health? And we discovered that for this uh, portion of our employee base that, that I'll call about a third, um, that their net disposable income was around four to six percent. So we aimed at that and we said, okay, we need to move this to 20% um, so that everyone has a chance to have financial security and financial wellness inside the company. And we put together um, a four-part program after doing a lot of uh, work with partners and, and looking at how we felt we could raise employee financial wellness so that everyone would have a sense of financial security, which we thought would also enhance their sense of belonging and the in the PayPal community and what we could do. And the way we aimed at this was through first stock ownership, making every single employee at every level of the company an owner so that they could benefit in the growth of the company and the success of the company and also begin to own stock, um, which we looked at as an essential part of trying to build financial resilience and financial health. We changed and lowered the cost of healthcare uh, particularly in the United States, where healthcare is a regressive tax in a sense that people pay the same for their healthcare at all parts of the economic spectrum. And that places the burden on those who are earning less, who are paying too much for their healthcare to enable them to either have healthcare in the first place or to sustain financial wellness. We change the cost of healthcare by as much as 60% um, for many of our employees. And that proved to be one of the greatest contributions towards financial health that we could put in place. We also adjusted wages where we felt that wages were out of sync and where we needed to make increases. And we built a financial planning and financial education policy around this. Um, we came into the pandemic with these programs in place and I think it provided a lot of, a, lot of a, a greater sense of financial security for our employees. But we also added to this during the pandemic, we did another tranche of, um, of stock um, for to increase uh, financial wellness. And we also provided different stipends uh, for people who are working at home and had changes in their uh, expenses. And by the end of uh, 2020 and into 2021, we had achieved um, up to 16% net disposable income with this population. And we are headed towards 18% and 20% uh, soon. Um, that led us to really think we've got to be open and share this um, this work and this measurement. This is something, especially in an era of stakeholder capitalism, where people are saying, you've got to serve all of your stakeholders, that putting employees first and focusing on their financial wellness is like, it benefits everyone in your group of stakeholders. And we started to partner with Just Capital, who've been thinking about this work and have been working sort of converging on where we were, as well as the Financial Health Network and, um, and MIT as well, um, and, and their institute. And we thought this could be incredibly powerful if more companies would join. 
And if you imagine all the great companies of the world really focusing on their employees' financial wellness, that's a massive impact on communities and economies. And um, it's great to be on this panel with, with Chipotle and Prudential who are early <clears throat> partners. And I think as you'll see, we're coming to this organically. So it's really, a, I think a movement and I think it's a very powerful one. I, um, just because the term financial wellness is, I think, relatively recent and not everybody may know exactly what that means, can you just very briefly describe what that term means to you or to, into the initiative? Yeah, for, for us, it really means having sufficient financial security that you are, you are in a position to start saving and planning for your future and planning in a way that you can, that you are able to have resilience when you have a problem, when you face that first crisis. Um, and everybody will. And you know, there's famous data out there that most Americans in particular have, don't have more than $400 um, to face a crisis. We wanted to be sure that for our employees, they had financial security and that financial wellness, which is, I think, you know, is an encapsulating principle that includes the ability to plan, the ability to save, the ability to pay your expenses and have something left over month over month that you can put towards the resilience of your family or your own budget. Great. Um, Marisa, I want to turn to you. You have talked some about your um, how your experience growing up in a family of immigrants has has informed your life and your path. Um, you've also done a lot of listening tours and engagement work with Chipotle employees. And I'm curious to hear, uh, maybe you can share what some of those stories, how the, the stories that you heard from your employees informed some of the changes Chipotle made to its human resources policies. Great. Yeah. Excited to be here with all of you. And thanks for the question. And yeah, I'm always proud to say that I'm first generation American. My parents both met here and immigrated and we had no family. And I think part of growing up was watching my mom's sisters come one by one to the land of opportunity, America. And, you know, with education and having other jobs, the only people that would hire them would be retail and restaurants. So fast food, minimum wage jobs is where they started. And it was great watching them make their way and move out of our house and, and kind of, you know, create their own life and create their own opportunity in America. I fast forward to Chipotle and I guess I'm not surprised that I am part of an organization where I have the privilege to support over 100,000 hourly team members. So we've got almost 3,000 restaurants. They're all company operated. And really the core of what we do is while it is food with integrity and it's cultivating a better world as our purpose, really at the center of all of that is people with integrity. You know, this is fresh prepared, um, safely prepared food every day made by people. And if I think about our, our employees, I joined the company back at the beginning of 2018 after our new CEO and chairman joined. And it was during a turnaround when the company came out of a food safety crisis. And the question was, was this a viable business? And we had to make our employees believe that we, you know, part of our turnaround was really investing in them. And so if I fast forward to the listening sessions, um, the engagement tours, everything that we do, so our entire executive team has these monthly meetings, no matter where we are in the country starting in 2018, we would sit and listen to employees. And I think the most important thing that we heard from, from them was, you know, for those who have been highly tenured and have worked their way in the company, that Chipotle has changed their life. 
And if I think about the word opportunity, it really is a place where you can have a minimum wage hourly worker join the company with no real skills and have the chance to upskill. And there's a transparent path to really have opportunity. Within three years, you could be a top level general manager and be earning $100,000. But I think what we heard was, while that's great, I think all of the other things, what was important to them was, you know, we have many um, English as a second language workers who join us. And I think we're one of the few employers that will hire because English is not really necessary to come and work in the restaurants. But I think what we did is we leaned into helping them have a, a menu of opportunities. So what was important to them was not only just a fair wage, that it was a competitive wage, but that we also made sure that we took care of them in terms of other benefits. So access to healthcare like everybody else, but also more specifically access to education and really creating a level playing field. And so one thing we did at the beginning of 2019 was introduce and well relax our tuition assistance program where you don't have to be here a year, you can be here for four months and then access our tuition assistance program. And then when our employees also told us, hey, our biggest issue, that our biggest stress in life is actually finances, not only finances to fund education, but just finances in general. We then introduced a debt-free degree, which has grown from five universities to 10 to over 100,000 programs focusing on business, technology, um, culinary, hospitality, and agriculture. Those are all the areas in which we know we're gonna need skills for the future. And I think in listening to our employees, that was one thing that they said, one big thing that stresses them out on their way into the restaurant and on their way out is really making a living and not only for themselves, but for their families at home. And so I think that's really informed us. What else can we do besides access to medical, access to um, equity in education? And then what we introduced as well was through a partnership with Eco Financial, just online kind of financial on-demand counseling so that they can plan for their lives in the next 30 days, the next six months, the next, you know, give them a little longer runway, kind of what Franz is saying, not quite, you know, for the future yet, but give them some um, good coaching on how they can do that. And so I think going back to, you know, everything that we do, it's really based similar to what Franz is sharing in the purpose of the company. And for us, it's cultivating a better world. And I think with the people at the center of everything that we do, you know, I think about, um, you know, our, our values and we have a statement around our values, which is all around fostering a culture that values and champions our diversity while leveraging the individual talents of everybody in the company so that we can grow the business and cultivate a better world. And yeah. I think that's okay. really important. So I, I, I'm really curious about the education benefits because I, I think I see that becoming more and more common yeah. with companies. I'm very curious about what the take-up rates are. So hopefully we'll have time to get to that um, down yeah, the road. Absolutely. Um, and Sarah, for Prudential, you are a financial services company. So maybe not surprising that this is a topic that is of interest. Um, but I would also think a lot of your employees are in the higher paid, higher skilled uh, categories. Maybe I'm wrong. So uh, please let us know uh, a little bit about that. But um, why did Prudential decide to get involved in this initiative? And you know, what are the sort of specific areas that, that you're concerned with? Yeah, thank you for the question. And it's great to be on this panel with everyone. 
I think it all starts, as you heard from Marissa and Franz as well, too, on our founding story, which is, you know, our founder, John Dryden, over 145 years ago, started the company because he saw a financial need in society, which is that people from low income communities couldn't afford the cost to bury their loved ones. They couldn't afford funeral expenses. And so our first product was burial insurance at the time, which cost as little as five to 10 cents a week. And so it's been in the ethos uh, in the very founding of our company that we're looking at how do you create pathways to financial security and ultimately prosperity. And so for us, this was, as you said, as a financial service company, a no brainer for us in terms of thinking about whether or not to support and engage in this initiative and join other companies in championing this issue. Because, you know, as all the stats that we've mentioned before, we know from our financial wellness census, 48% of Americans are stressed about their finances. 40% of Americans don't have $400 in their savings. 60% don't have $500 in their savings. So everybody is one accident, one crisis away from finding, uh, finding themselves in the financial vulnerable category. Um, and so as a financial services company, we have a large employee base. We have close to 50,000 employees, but we're also a benefits provider. So we provide group life insurance plans, retirement plans, short-term disabilities. And so what we are looking to do with this initiative is not only advocate for the things that we're doing with our own employees, um, and I could go through the laundry list of benefits that we're providing, but also think about how do we encourage our employer clients to think about what's the type of financial wellness offerings and services that they could be providing. And so we've been working not only internally about thinking about our own products and services, but then also bringing in external partners, whether they be from, you know, more innovative fintechs or nonprofit organizations to think about debt management, to help people think about, you know, if you're going to default on your rental payment or more mortgages, like how can housing counseling be a beneficial um, service to you all. So really thinking of the spectrum of needs. And we do a uh, quite a frequent pulse of the American worker survey. And uh, in our last survey, we found that eight out of 10 workers are really looking to their employers to provide benefits around increasing their financial well-being. And so we know that workers are looking to their employers for that. We've talked about this, that this, the public social safety nets have really gone away over the last several years. And so employers are seen as a resource and not only as a resource, but really thinking about how can I increase my own productivity? How can I decrease my financial stress to add to, you know, whether it be product development or thinking about customer satisfaction, because they're all tied in. You know, when you're stressed about your personal finances, there's a lot that clouds your mind in terms of what you are able to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so thinking about each uh, point of view. And then for us, it's really thinking about how do we also look at what different uh, employee segments are looking for. And so disaggregating that data to understand what employees are most interested in, depending on whether it's their cultural or socioeconomic stance. And I will say that question that you do, did address, we do have a spectrum of skill sets and salary ranges as well, too, because Obviously, we are a financial services company, so we don't have frontline jobs, but we do have call center roles across the country as well, too. And so really making sure that everybody feels like they're receiving the same type of services. And I will say, and I'm sure other companies as well, too, do this, is that we have a sliding scale for our benefits. So the more uh, higher your salary is, the more the, um, the less the company contributes to your benefits and to your health insurance plan and things like that. And that's really to try to you know, give that parity to ensure that everybody has the type of same uh, similar supports. Mm -hmm. You uh, you mentioned that Prudential also wants to help your employer clients. And I think that's a good segue to um, back to Marisa, because one of the questions that came up in the pre-submitted questions, and I think it's probably on the minds of a lot of people here is how do you get 
your own employer's buy-in. So how do you get your CEO, your CFO, the rest of your leadership team, um, if they're not already on board, to uh, agree to some of these changes? Because obviously there is a financial impact. I don't, I'm not sure if, I'd love to hear whether some of you are seeing positive financial impact, you know, or if it's cutting into the bottom line. But Marisa, you obviously went through this with your employer, with, with Chipotle. So tell us you know, yeah. how you about the process. I think that's a great question. I think part of getting the buy-in from the CEO and the CEO and from the exec, executive team really starts with, is it aligned to who we are and what we stand for? So a lot of what we did back in 2018 when we came together was codify our values around cultivating a better world. Now, that's not an easy feat because then we said, all right, based on that, what is the vision that we have for people? And I think at the backdrop for everything, you know, the foundation of our guest experience is based on our employee experience. And so everything that we have done to invest in our people has been all around cultivating an environment where all employees can thrive, pursue their passion and become lifelong leaders. And, you know, that has kind of been the North Star um, as we began looking at, all right, how do we invest in our people? Because again, our growth translates to having fully staffed restaurants. I mean, it's a pretty basic business, right? So all company operated, we're able to have this amazing sustainably raised food that is brought to the restaurants that is safely prepared and, and like deliciously cooked every day. And that requires human beings. And so I think when you have that at the center of your decision-making, and if you don't have fully staffed restaurants where I think, you know, the audience here knows that retention is good because then that drives consistency of the experience and the product that we deliver. I think if you make it that germane and then take them back up and say, all right, for 100,000 part-time hourly team members, how do we ensure that we drive that consistency for them? And, you know, we talked a lot about overall wellness. You know, one of the stressors we learned was financial. So that when we came forward, you know, my team came forward and said, all right, how do we create equity to education benefits? You know, English is a second language, for example, or GED. The fact that we pay for that for our employees and our families, why is that important? That just improves their overall experience as well as experience for the guests, right? Access to two or four year degrees or, um, you know, debt-free certifications and debt-free degrees. Why is that important? because we see that the labor pool, and who knew this would happen even after the pandemic, we see that um, you know, there's a finite group of workers out there in the world. And so how can we go from always churning people to actually be in the business of you know, creating talent for the future? And that, that helps others. And so when we had big things like debt-free degrees, as well as um, access to mental health benefits, when we wanted to introduce that, of course, I would tell everybody, make sure you have the business case. But at the end of the day, if it's aligned to, you know, the, the strategy of the company, you know, the purpose of the company. And for us, that was a key pillar to our transformation. It made easy buy-in. Now, I'd say the results speak for themselves. Again, if you don't have a fully staffed restaurant where everyone knows what they're doing, then we're not going to be able to deliver the kind of great, you know, food and service to our guests and then our employees aren't going to be happy. And so between 2018 and 2019, you know, we've seen um, the average unit volume grow, you know, from two to two and a half million. You know, a lot of that was our digital business as well. 
And then if you look at um, our market cap, it's gone from just over, I want to say we were just at 6 billion when we kind of came together at the beginning of 2018. And now we're just over 50 billion. And so I believe that there's a direct correlation to all of the key measures around retention, around engagement, especially with this kind of workforce that does directly translate to business results. And that's why you do it. You know, and because we're about cultivating a better world, it is about creating an environment where employees can thrive. And people always question, well, what about education? And if you give them that six month requirement and they're gonna leave, what if they leave? And we say, great, then you created leaders for the world, right? And so that's, you have to believe that wholeheartedly for a company to really invest in that way. And so- okay. um, um, Sorry, hi. I'm just gonna stop you there so we hi. make sure we get everybody, but I wanna just comment on the retention point, which I think is on the minds of every CEO right now. Um, and not just CEO, everybody in any of the positions that you all are in, every corp- every company and manager. Um, it's just, uh, we can't write enough stories about retention, turnover, people quitting their jobs um, and how companies are approaching that. Um, Sarah, you, Prudential has also been uh, addressing a lot of issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, and there's obviously an intersection here with the financial wellness piece. Um, and you know, we've, we've referenced already that you know, financial wellness might mean something different depending on uh, someone's racial background, cultural, uh, gender, um, geography. So Tell us a little bit more about how you merge those two lenses um, and, you know, what that means in terms of how you actually deliver benefits or what you offer and uh, and who takes up what. Yeah, if you if we talk about our purpose about closing the financial divide, you can't disassociate that with the racial wealth gap, right? Because there's so much synergies in there. And we know that white households have 10 times the wealth of black households and other um, households of color. And so even within the way that we look at our benefits and how we are addressing them for our employee base, we actually do a survey looking at what do certain segments around racial, ethnic and gender lines value more in terms of their benefits. So we know, for example, that our Asian employees uh, value compensation, PTO, higher than our Black employees who value um, financial services and coaching and counseling. And then we know for our uh, female employees that they value more having healthcare deductibles be manageable, providing mental wealth and mental health um, supports. And so it's really better understanding what are the segments um, that people, segments of our employees and what are they interested in and customizing those benefits to those populations because not everybody's gonna want the same thing. You wanna make sure as a company you're providing a suite of services because people have different needs, but then you have to take a look at what are the different um, interests and values from a cultural background. And then we try to parlay that into our employer clients as well too, to say that you should think about disaggregating your data, better understanding, and then looking at the access and the usage of the um, benefits as well too, because a, a large part of what we heard is that people know that Prudential provides a whole suite of benefits, but they don't know how to access it. Or they're worried that if they provide financial information to a coach or to a counselor, that that information is going to get to the employer. So, so much about this is making sure that we have equitable access, but that also people know how to leverage them as well, too, because there's such an intersection of how do we make sure that this financial divide does not keep perpetuating the racial wealth gap, but that it's something that we're looking to help close with the benefits that we do provide and that we champion with our employer clients as well. 
And that also gets to the question of um, tracking and monitoring how benefits are being used and who, you know, who uses what. And so Franz, I'm curious, you, you already shared some really interesting statistics with us earlier. You're clearly tracking this very closely. Um, do you have any tips on how to, you know, how do you monitor this? Is it all self-reported from your employees? What kinds of surveys do you do? Yeah, I think there for we've approached this in sort of three ways. Um, one, there there are things you can just see and relate to the program, like how many people are taking your healthcare uh, programs and how many are enhancing and growing their healthcare or within what with what I'll call the financial wellness community. So we can see that more people are taking more healthcare. We can see more people. Um, really taking advantage of the 401k program. We can see retention rates. Um, we can see surveys about job satisfaction, about levels of inspiration. We can see productivity levels. And then there are sort of the intangibles that the parts of people's lives that, you know, are their own, it's their own choice whether they want to discuss them. So we've also undertaken some, a technique we learned from the Financial Health Network, is, which is to have volunteers who who do financial diaries and and sort of share with us their experience? So we have the the sort of anecdotal part of the quantitative side. How um, many people do you have doing the diaries? You know, I don't know the exact number, but we've created a representative sample, mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's a healthy part of how we are trying to understand and and grow the program. But let me just maybe add because I think it's important to your question on you know how should those on the phone you know get involved? Those on the call think about getting their companies involved. One of the great things about this initiative, about the uh, worker financial wellness initiatives is we've all agreed to sort of share what we're learning and be open about how we're measuring and what we're learning. And for those who, and that's available, um, that kind of learning and counseling is available through the worker financial health initiative. And we've put out a practitioner's guide to worker financial wellness that provides some of the lessons learned today and sort of the, a discussion about financial wellness overall that's available to anyone who wants to access it. And I think going to the site and reaching out to our, uh, our partners at Just Capital, at the Financial Health Network, at the Good Jobs Institute to help get started and to start with that practitioners, guys, think about what makes sense for your company. We also have members who join us um, in, um, in different stages of engagement um, so that they can, in a sense, learn as they, as they grow into the program. So there, this initiative was intended to open the aperture so that many, many, many companies can get involved and step into this because pe every company is going to have a different uh, ability to rise into this work. Um, and sometimes it will be from the mission, as we've discussed. Sometimes it's the way you're thinking about stakeholder capitalism. Um, sometimes I think it's a retention necessity. You certainly can see retention rates affected by this. Um, so I just, I just recommend that those on the phone really explore the resources so we can bring you into the coalition. Thank you. And there is a lot on that website. I was taking a look at it earlier. Uh, I want to turn to just a lightning round um, for, you know, we, that was, those were very practical tips, but um, maybe we'll do a little bit more um, just quickly. If you had to give one piece of advice to the people on this call, um, Franz, I sort of feel like you already did that. So um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to ask Sarah and Marisa. 
Um, I'll combine two quickly. One is to do a financial health assessment of your employees, just to get a baseline understanding of where your employees are. And to make sure that just because you provide a certain number of benefits doesn't mean that your employees are actually utilizing them. So how do you marry sometimes that gap that exists between access and utilization? Yeah, mine's, yeah, mine's similar to Sarah. Absolutely um, measure what it is that your employees want. Don't just throw it out there. So while we have that vision, we got really clear in asking our employees through survey work, through the listening doors, and then measure the utilization of it right? Because that's how you create that ROI and tie it to the business. Mm -hmm. Great. And then um, I think it was Sarah who brought up earlier, you know, the, or maybe it was Maureen, the, the role of the employer in these questions has really expanded. People expect a lot more from their employer in terms of financial and other forms of wellness. So, uh, but yet the government still obviously plays a big role and the census numbers from yesterday make that clear. Uh, if there were two policy um, priorities or changes you think would make a big difference on in this um, and that you think legislators should pursue possibly to take some of the pressure off of employers or to complement what employers are doing, what might those be? And Franz, I'll start with you. Um, well, I'll confess, um, I took Cass Sunstein's course in law school, so I'm a big believer in incentives and in nudges. And I think that um, from a policy perspective, um, it, it, it could be very helpful to create incentives for companies to do this work um, because I think it, uh, it has to be a partnership with the public sector. These are enormous issues and companies are stepping into many uh, voids and taking responsibility um, for their communities and, and their workforces, but it's got to be a partnership um, with the public sector and frankly, as we've learned, a, partner, a partnership with nonprofits and think tanks and academic institutions. So I think taking that partnership approach and I, I hope that we will see more incentives uh, for introducing these kinds of programs because they do benefit communities and the economy. Thanks, Marisa. I would say one which is access to affordable, affordable housing. I think that's really important. Again, I'm thinking about the workforce that we support. Um, you know, one of my, my dear friends who actually works at the Aspen Institute talks about, you know, where you live defines how you live. And I think that is such a basic that more communities need to think about access to affordable housing in nicer communities for, you know, for our workers and for the citizens. So that's one thing I point out. Okay. Sarah? Two quick ones, um, universal uh, family and uh, medical leave, uh, paid medical leave, I should say. So I would say, you know, obviously everything that's happened in the pandemic, people have quite seen the detriments of not having that and the inability to take that. Um, and then I would say on the flip side of all of that is, uh, you know, we're seeing much more transparency around wages where companies now have to disclose that. It would be great to see that for benefits too. And, and those benefits being provided, particularly for part-time workers who are hourly wages. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Um, you know, you often don't know what you're going to be paying for your health insurance until day one, <laughs> sometimes day two. Um, thank you. And I want to turn now to some of the audience questions. Um, one is, how does your question, how does your company measure ROI? Is that important or is that necessary? Do you note increases in worker retention? What should a company do about pay when for some workers, the market rate in their area isn't enough to live on? I'll just I mean, throw that open. Yeah, I'll jump in. I think I've already kind of mentioned it. 
Measuring ROI is really some of the people measures in our company. It looks, we look at retention or turnover. We also look at engagement. And if you can correlate that to both top and bottom line. So for us, it's sales comp and our restaurant cash flow, our, our profitability. I think that's a great way to measure ROI. I think Sarah also said this too, make sure you're also measuring utilization, right? So if you, if you have a suite of offerings, I think it's really important that you're seeing an uptake on that and seeing what you know that correlation is to the business. Um, and then lastly, I think about just what can companies do? And I know that we just went through a process of increasing the average wages for all of our employees in the restaurants hourly and our managers. And you know, one thing that I hear more often as well is it's great to have all of these. I think it has to also be authentically provided by the company. And I mean that through, you know, Franz and Sarah have talked about these purpose-driven companies that they are a part of. And I think when a company really lives that, employees will believe that. And more than pay and more than benefits, it is that purpose-driven and alignment to that and belief in that will that will attract and retain them. Thanks. Anybody else want to jump in on that one? I think I covered it with our, from our perspective, um, but it, it's 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 the right question, and uh, that's why I think all of us kind of front loaded the front loaded the answer. Yeah, I'll just say that you know we so we do an annual assessment of how employees feel if they're feeling slightly financially stressed, and so that's a high measure for us to see what the satisfaction of our employees are of the type of benefits that they're receiving. Um, but it also, we think it translates to productivity and actually product development. I think the more employees are feeling more at peace at work with their own financial uh, stressors, that they're going to produce more outcomes and that our products are going to be better developed because we are a financial services company. And so, uh, you know, we look at it across the whole spectrum of not only people and their um, level of stress and satisfaction, but then also what does that translate to and actually sales and meeting customer needs um, for in the terms of their financial health. Mm -hmm. so I guess I just add that this is becoming a key part of how companies think about wellness. There's been a lot of conversation and, and, and programs around wellness for decades. Financial wellness is starting to become a central part of that because it connects to that sense of security, sense of belonging, to, um, to how you feel about the world and the community you live in and the company. And I think that's a really important, and, and you can see that in employee surveys and levels of ins inspiration and in how people feel connected to the mission of the company and to um, the company's values. So I think it's, it's, this is increasingly becoming part of how we live. Right. I, I think, you know, what I hear all of you saying is that it's, this is a holistic issue. It's not just about how much money is in someone's bank account at the end of the month, but it's also about mental health and it's about, or mental wealth, as Sarah said earlier. Um, and, you know, these, uh, and retention and productivity and all these other measures that, that matter to companies. It's not just about a dollar figure. Um, you know, education has been, like I said before, I, I see more and more companies offering education benefits and saying they'll pay for bachelor's degrees. Um, Risa, that's been a big um, focus for Chipotle, but you know, not every not every employee 
wants that, uh, has the time for it or the capacity. Um, and I'm really curious, um, and uh, we've gotten a question too, education can only do so much in terms of achieving economic security and doesn't guarantee a level playing field when low wage is a structural issue. So um, I'm gonna combine my question with, with the audience members. What do the panelists see as the role of their companies or the government in addressing the structural issues? And then sort of also related to education as a as a force for mobility for people, how do you, um, you know, either encourage or incentivize people to take that? And for the many people who will not take that up, um, you know, make sure that they're also, you know, they have access to the other benefits that are most important to them. I can start. Uh, I think there are a few ways that com what companies role in all of this is right. Obviously, we are all large employers. So what we can do for our employees and set standards for our industry or peer companies to follow suit. And that's the whole point of this worker financial wellness initiative, right, to encourage and incentivize other employees to do more. Um, but I also think about how, you know, for our, from our perspective, you know, we're trying to drive business value by solving societal challenges. And so and that's closing the financial divide. And so it's taking a look at all the resources that we have, whether it's around our actual products and services and what we're developing for people to build their um, wealth, but then also thinking about it from our philanthropic side as well, too. That's where we are supporting a lot of nonprofit organizations, whether it's in uh, innovative news services or products or in their advocacy efforts to really think about how do you make sure that people do have more access to resources. And so paid family leave is something that our, our, our nonprofit partners are advocating for, making the child tax credit be more permanent. And so these are the ways that we are marrying, not only just philanthropy is not just on the side of the things, but it's right in line with how we do our business because it's trying to change some of the structural issues around dismantling some of the policy barriers or improving policies uh, to get to the point where it's not just about our own employees or customers, but it's looking at the macro economy. Yeah, I mean, I would just add, I think it's clear in the era we're in and it became even more clear during the pandemic that global companies and every company has a role to play in addressing the structural issues that are creating um, an economy that's not inclusive and an economy that has wide disparities. You know, in, in our case, we've really focused on doing our part to close the racial wealth gap. And we've put over half a billion dollars in investments into our programs and involved our employees in a whole host of uh, activities to really try to do our part. It's not, no company can do it alone, but we all have a distinctive part to play. And I think each company needs to look at what are the core capabilities or the distinctive talents and resources that you can bring to bear to focus on those structural issues. For PayPal, it's about economic empowerment. It's about making sure that people have access to capital. It's about making sure that that small businesses can connect to the global economy, that minority-owned small businesses have a fair shot at capital, at engagement in the economy, and trying to close the gaps so that everyone can participate and have access. Other companies have another have other core capabilities they can bring to bear. And each of the each of my fellow panelists, their companies are doing similarly sort of profound things that come from who they are. Um, and I think it's just part of how we live right now. Um, as companies in the current um, state of capitalism. Yeah, when, when I think of structural issues, I just straight up think about diversity and inclusion and what that looks like. And do we have diversity and inclusion at every level that reflects not only our workforce, but the communities that we serve. 
And I think, you know, education, yes, that's a way and a pathway to opportunity. But I think companies also uh, need to think differently about what opportunities look like and how you tap into the workforce, whether or not they have the education, the traditional education that's required and create those opportunities for them to explore, right? Explore meaning, you know, there's education and then we also have different ways that you can gain skills through training, not formal education. That So as long as companies provide access to that, you know, upskilling is a big deal. And especially during the pandemic, when many people lost their jobs and now they're trying to start over again, I think the role that companies can play in providing a chance for people to reskill or upskill, I think is really important to help them help feed them into not only our restaurant jobs, but you know, that you're looking at every level in the organization and that you're reflecting the communities that you serve. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is making diverse hiring decisions and thinking differently about um, you know, I think if you, you said this, Lauren, it's the overall wellness of a human being and unlocking the ability for people to just authentically show up the way they are and feel confident, you know, in that. Mm -hmm. um, this is a great question from the audience. Um, you're all huge businesses and with employing many thousands of people and with a lot of resources at your disposal. What are what kinds of actions could be adapted to smaller and medium-sized businesses? I'll say sometimes it's a lot easier actually to be more nimble and to be more responsive if you are a small to medium-sized business because you have that agility that sometimes, you know, I think we'll all admit there's a lot of bureaucratic um, lines that we have to go through to make wholesale changes. Um, but I do think, you know, particularly around the retirement side, I think more small businesses need to participate in what, you know, the legislators passed the SECURE Act. So that's the multiple employer plans that small businesses can contribute to retirement. So thinking about innovative ways like that, where small businesses can come together when they don't have a large HR uh, department, but to think about what are some of the benefit providers that may not have to live within your HR department, but there are platforms or nonprofits or associations that are um, providing that and employers can contribute to that so that the employee is not on their own to, you know, join um, on that platform or that association. And then I think it's, you know, uh, having your employees voice in all of this, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it's harder when there's 50,000 employees versus, you know, 10 to 100 employees uh, to really understand uh, how they would like to see the benefits package look at their small business or medium size, but then also be able to collaborate across. I guess I'd just add that um, there's also a mindset question, which is, you know, no matter what size, the sizes of your company, your highest competitive advantage is in your talent and in your employees. And if you take the mindset that that's your highest priority and that employees have to be your first concern if you are going to succeed and win, then to, to, to this point of really having your employees voice in the equation and understanding what are the things you can do, even if it's just step by step as you grow your business, um, to do what's needed to give your employees that sense that you're investing in them and that you are focused on all the well-being that comes from financial security. It's going to help you win that war for talent, and that's going to be your competitive advantage um, at any size. Yeah, I, I would add in, I agree to all of that. And what a competitive advantage to actually have access to the voices of all the employees you'll be able to attract people if you're clear on again who you are and what you stand for the purpose of your small companies if you also lean into finding people who are passionate about what it is that you're doing i think it'll make it even 
that easier, just engaging them on where is the state of the business today and how you're making investments in them and how that fits within the P&L of the company. You know, when you have that, um, a smaller business, it's a great way to keep them engaged. Um, financial literacy is a big part of this. And, and somebody asked about that as well. Um, you know, explaining to people the difference between owning a home and renting or, um, compound interest or why to be part of the company's 401k plan and contribute their own money. Um, how much, you know, how do you provide, how do you go about providing the kinds of financial literacy that your employees need to make the right kinds of decisions? Well, I think for us, just real, two things. Um, for our hourly workforce and all of our office team members, we do have what we call a what's in your burrito in that it's a way you look at all things, pay and benefits rolled up on an annualized basis so they can see kind of what the total value of it is that they've earned in the last year, so to speak. So it's kind of a review of their earnings. And the other one, again, is this access to financial counseling. It's on demand for our employees and you know the way they want it, which is online and via mobile. And it's like, how do they take that what's in their burrito and use that as a starting point to kind of plan their, plan their lives? We have an in-house uh, financial um, education curriculum that we provide not only our customers, but also our employees. And we have a prudential financial advisor business. And so the great thing is our financial advisors are providing that. And so we offer that on a regular basis annually. And we go through as deep topics as everything from budgeting to saving, but also it's state tax planning. What do you need to prepare for in your retirement? And so all of our employees have access to that. And we've seen a big uptake um, over the last several years as we've offered more financial education programs, especially for those who, for the first time, are thinking about savings and investments and owning stock. And it's been a really important part of the program. We've seen a lot of participation. Um, and we also have a sort of on-demand personal um, counseling, too, that, uh, that people can take advantage of and, you know, an endless amount of materials as well. Um, I don't, we probably aren't as deep as Prudential or in this bill or in this business, uh, but we're doing the best we can. Do you advise people to buy GameStop or not? <laughs> not common. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we are at time. Um, so I'm going to turn this over to Maureen, but first, thank you everyone for being part of the panel. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. And thank you to Marisa, Franz, and Sarah. This was a really rich and uh, very interesting conversation. I think you've given us all a lot to think of, think about as we try to figure out how do we um, build a more financially resilient workforce and improve workers' financial wellness. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. I also want to thank the team, my colleagues at the Aspen Institute, uh, Mark Popovich, Tony Maspio, Yuri Chang, Adrian Lee. Um, these events are always a huge team effort and uh, really appreciate all the support in, in pulling this together. Um, thanks to the audience for joining us today and sharing your questions and comments. Um, do again, please take a moment to respond to our, our quick feedback survey if you haven't already done so. It's in the polls tab um, in the Slido box at the bottom of your screen. So um, please do send us um, some feedback. You can also email us. Again, it's eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Um, we love to hear from you. Please let us know what you think. And please do come back. Our next session, How Digital Transformation is Impacting Work and Skill Needs, will be on Wednesday, September 22nd from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, so please join us for that if your schedule allows. Um, hope to see you then. Thank you.